true. The Bible teaches that as humans made in the image of God, we do have certain rights. Let me give you an example. Right to property. The Bible would not say do not steal if property didn't exist. I'm not talking about land. I'm talking about property in general. That's just an example. We wouldn't have the command to not steal if property didn't exist. So we have these certain rights, and our hearts demand things because of these. Now, what do we do when our rights are violated? What's our response normally? We want to protect them, right? It's an innocent response. We want to protect them. It's like Nicodemus. You do all these signs and wonders. Jesus says you must be born again. How can a man be born when he is old, right? We've got this natural response to things. And the actions we take when our rights are violated show what our hearts truly demand, vengeance or Jesus. When your rights are violated, how you respond shows what you truly demand, vengeance or Jesus, not both. People are intensely conscious of their rights, especially, you know it's funny, I was listening to a sermon from the 70s by our friend John MacArthur, um, and he was talking about the same exact thing we talk about today. Like there's nothing new under the sun, right? People, we're so, we're so focused on our rights in our culture now that we, we don't even know what our rights are, right? We just, we, we just want to be right, right? The right to be, I'm going to say this in love, the right to be any gender we choose, the right to marry any gender we choose, the right to smoke whatever we want, the, rim, the woman's right to choose. And here's one as a parent I've learned, the right to let our children do whatever they want, no obedience. We have rights as parents. The kids have rights, so don't tell them what to do. My point in saying this is we're so focused on so many different rights that what are rights, right? We've kind of diluted that word, that it doesn't mean anything anymore. We want what we think is our own, and we will protect these at any cost. And we'll even wreak havoc on anyone who takes away what we think is ours. So my pastor back in Kentucky, Jay Ingram, is from rural, er, er, rural Alabama. There it is. Now, by rural Alabama, I mean rural Alabama. Like, you're lucky if you have air. You're lucky if you have, no one has internet in where he lived. Uh, but one of the stories he told me is that it was just cultural that you just never set foot on someone's property, right? It was just accepted that you just shoot whoever comes on your property. And that seems extreme, right? But that's just how it was. That's just what you do, right? And no one thought it was extreme. It was just so culturally accepted, right? We have this desire to protect what we think is ours. And we insist on our own rights deep down. In our heart, we want this game of life to be played fairly. And we don't want it to violate our rights. So where are we going with this? We'll get there. I promise. We'll read the passage and be like, got it. And we do have fundamental rights as humans created in the image of God, as I said. We talked about that property. But a heart that demands Jesus is a heart that acknowledges that we have no other rights outside obedience to Jesus. A heart that demands Jesus, not demands vengeance, demands Jesus is a heart that acknowledges that we have no other rights outside of our obedience. That is our right, our obedience to Jesus. Notice how I said not our obedience to Lakeshore, 
not our obedience to Commission Church, not our obedience to Pastor Charlie, Pastor Larry, not our obedience to our parents, although that is required, but ultimately our obedience to Jesus. We have given up our rights in exchange for a place in God's army. 2 Timothy 2.3 says, is a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Um, do soldiers in our, in our military have rights? Yes, right? But what do they need to do? Right? Obedient to orders. Right? They have rights, but they're obedient to orders. And they go hand in hand. All right, this is what we're going to learn about as Jesus' address is our response to when we get offended <laughs> in various ways. So let's read this passage. We're in Matthew 5, 38 through 42. When you get there, stop. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Everyone's heard that one. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Again, we see Jesus says, You have heard that it was said and then he says, but I say to you. At first, this doesn't seem like Jesus is telling us to be, well, as I'm saying, at first read, this seems like Jesus is telling us to be a limp fish. Have you ever shook anyone's hand? One of those, like, limp fish? Remember, I had a pastor back in the day, not Charlie. He would shake his hand and be like, you didn't even try. And a lot of people have taken this passage to mean a life of passivism. That we are just not to respond in any way to anything that happens to us. In fact, I read a story that a man watched his family killed right in front of him because he took this out of context, meaning do nothing to anyone who does evil. Right? So let's break this down. This is why understanding Scripture is important. That's why context is important. Verse 38. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You have heard it was said. So we look at this, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Doesn't that like describe our culture right now? You might say yes, but I say no. I think what our culture is at right now, an eye for a life and a tooth for a life. Right? We'll, we'll get into that in just a second. This law that he's talking about was meant, it was introduced in the Old Testament, it was meant to settle disputes in the courts, not personally. It was meant to keep a rein in on punishment. It wasn't a mandate for punishment, it was meant to say, go no further than this in punishment, right? And that's what our courts in this land, at least originally, were designed to do, that the punishment fit the crime. And this law he's talking about, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye of truth, is known as the law of retaliation, lex talionis. You may have heard that, that term, this law of retaliation. The goal is fair and balanced judgments. Now, I want to make a point that Jesus isn't opposing legal application here. This is Jesus opposing acts of personal vengeance. 
pray, and revenge. Remember, our heart demands vengeance or it demands Jesus. This is important. I really want to drive that home because I don't drive in California anymore. I drive in Kentucky. The only thing that causes traffic is tractors, right? And this time of year, trailers full of hay. Right, but driving in California, uh, I mean, what happens when you cut someone off? What's their response? According to Lex Talionis, maybe they should just cut you off too. <laughs> maybe they should just cut you off too. But what do they do? I mean, I've had someone, what do they do? They brake check? They, they, they swerve in front of you, brake check for miles and miles and miles. You cut them off on accident, and they want to kill you. It's California. Just kidding, kind of. But again, traffic. I just couldn't get past that. Man, it took us an hour to get through the McDonald's drive-thru and the In-N-Out drive-thru last night for dinner. We have picky kids. We had to go to two different places. <laughs> an hour. How do you guys get anything done? All right, back to the text. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This law, it was a merciful law. John MacArthur said this, and I, I want to quote him because it's a good quote. Human vengeance is never satisfied with justice. It wants a pound of flesh for an ounce of offense. Right? Let me, let me say it again. Human vengeance is never satisfied with justice. It wants a pound of flesh for an ounce of offense. I remember in early Lakeshore days, we went through various kind of ups and downs, uh, and the smallest thing would happen and you would just see a flock of people just, just not very happy. The smallest thing, an ounce, a pound of flesh for an ounce of offense. And it was, I just didn't get it. I was a new Christian. I didn't understand what was happening. But I praise God that he's been faithful to Lakeshore. But this vengeance is a dangerous game. Beneath our external facade of gentleness and compassion, listen to this, it's a bottomless capacity for uncontrollable anger and vengeance. And it's important we understand that because if we recognize that in our hearts, we will trust Jesus more. Because the only way to avoid that is a faith in a Christ who has conquered the grave. Again, I said this is not a mandate to seek vengeance, but a limit on that sentence the court could demand. And the scribes and Pharisees would conveniently use it as a mandate for personal vengeance. Again, taking things out of context, the scribes and Pharisees. And then Jesus comes up in verse 39 and he says, but I say to you, this is important. This is God saying, you have heard it said. These people say words, but I'm God. This is what I say. Do not resist the one who is evil. So what does that mean? Do not resist the one who is evil. In other words, vengeance against evil is not reserved for us. But for who? For God. Vengeance against evil is not reserved for us. It is reserved for for God. I'm going to say it one more time so we don't forget. Vengeance against evil is not reserved for us, but for God. Because our hearts will either demand vengeance or it will demand Jesus. And more specifically, do not resist the one who is evil means do not retaliate against others as enemies. Oof. Do not retaliate against evil with violent aggression. Rather, retaliate if possible, right? We still, got, we still have this call. Retaliate against evil as though it was your neighbor. 
And what is, what's one of the greatest commandments? Love your neighbor, right? Retaliate against evil as if it was your neighbor. That will change what that looks like. An attitude of total love with Christ calls us to show, uh, a total love which Christ calls us to show towards anyone who is evil. Be loving, not hateful, kind, not harsh, and use wisdom, not vengeance. It's important. So what Jesus is doing in this passage, as we read through it, we're going to see some examples of what, he's, what he would have us do in certain situations. He's not teaching. He's not giving us a prescription, right? He's giving us wisdom. He's giving us a foundation on how to make decisions when we find ourselves in these particular situations. Now, we should seek wisdom, says the Bible. Romans 12, 17 through 21 says, Repay no, eat, no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live conflictingly. No, live peaceably. With all. With, with who? Yeah. We live peaceably? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. We're still in Romans. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals. I heard a pastor from back in the day say, when someone wrongs you, heap burning coals on their head. But look what that means. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals. Try to remember that. Someone wrongs you, heap burning coals on their head, meaning love them. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, we're in the context of personal offenses here. All right, so what are we supposed to do then? So Jesus gives us four examples to illustrate the fulfilling of do not resist the evil one. Here's number one. But if anyone slaps you, run home crying to your mom. Call the police. Key their car. Slash their tires. Egg their house. It's all stuff that I wanted to do in high school. I'm joking. Half. The Lord saved me. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I'm sure we've heard that whether you've read the Bible or haven't. Turn the other cheek. But what does that mean? Literally, just if they hurt you, let them hurt you more? Is that what I'm supposed to do? Now, in this context, what Jesus is talking about is this backhanded slap, this right hand to right cheek, right? And this is a very offensive slap in this culture. It was a great insult and the most embarrassing. But it was a very calculated insult. It meant you were nothing. You were less than nothing. So take the slap out of it and picture a scenario where someone makes you feel less than nothing. That's what he's talking about. Let me give you an example. I'm a parent now. We watch Bugs Life all the time. My kids won't watch modern stuff. They only like that old stuff. And I praise God because there's some weird modern stuff. When those grasshoppers come to collect their food, and there's no food, what happens? They tell, the, I, I know this is silly, but it's going to make a point. <laughs> they tell those ants that they are nothing. Are those ants nothing? No, we learn by the end of the movie. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. There's more ants than grasshoppers. The point is this. 
you find yourself in a scenario where someone makes you feel less than nothing. And the, di- the idea here that is that a Christ follower, if someone is insulting you, that you are willing to endure further insult. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm saying that you are willing because a heart will either demand vengeance or it will demand Jesus. Absorb the insult. No matter how right you are, and how wrong the other person's actions are, 1 Peter 2, 20-21 says, If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. If when you do good. So the definition of do good is important, because you might think you're doing good and you might not be. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Chuck Quarles, I don't know if you've heard of him, he says Jesus himself was the perfect model of this gracious response to the abuses of others. He was mocked, spat on, beaten with sticks, slapped, scourged, and nailed to a cross. Nevertheless, he endured this all without retaliation. What? And even with forgiveness on his lips. Never is the disciple more like the Savior than when he responds to abuses graciously and without retaliation. Our hearts will demand vengeance or they will demand Jesus. We are to think more about the other's good than about our own harm. And if we keep that perspective, we will absorb the insult. This includes more than just avenging physical harm, but responding to violation of things we own. And we look at verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. How many of you wear tunics or cloaks? Usually when we see someone wearing a cloak, we're concerned. But in this time, what Jesus is talking about is being forced to surrender our own possessions, whether fair or unfair. And in this time, a tunic was a long inner garment. Now, I didn't know this. I had to look this up. But it's a long inner garment worn under the coat. It was used uh, for making payments or exchanges in Jesus' day, right? It was an important part, and it went under the cloak. And the cloak was even more important. Was the outer garment more valuable? And sometimes they would use it to sleep on. Remember, these aren't times when we could just get a hotel. I mean, even Jesus couldn't find a hotel, right? These aren't times when <laughs> we would just get a hotel or stay at a friend's house, right? These are people sleeping on hay. Um. There was even a law, right, speaking of this cloak, there was a law in the Old Testament saying that um, the poor should not need to surrender the coat. It was important to know that you could be sued and give up your tunic as payment, right? But they, if they took your cloak, they had to give it back by sundown because you needed that either to keep warm or to sleep on. But what is Jesus saying here? And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. Even if the law protects you from giving up your possessions, this is important, I live in Kentucky, where what you own is very important. (laughs) Even if the law protects you from giving up your possessions, you should be willing to for the progress of the gospel. I'm not saying you should give it up. This is a heart thing. You should be willing to for the sake of the gospel. Do what the law of the land requires and be willing to go further. I mean, this is the theme of Jesus. He would always go further than we'd ever think is necessary. If we are robbed of some of our cherished liberty, <laughs> those are scary words to say in, in this culture, and right our cherished liberty, 
we should surrender even more of it rather than retaliate. I'm not saying give in to evil. What I'm saying is that Jesus is more important. Wow. My notes didn't print all the way out. We're going to get through this without notes. I blame Ryan Moulton. Are they still in the printer back there? That's okay. Let's move forward. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Look at these examples. Jesus is saying, here's the scenario the gospel is more important. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, we're not talking about running. In this time, remember, Israel's under Roman rule. And there was law saying that a Roman soldier could make you carry their stuff a mile or a thousand paces. And you had to. Nothing you can do. Here's what Jesus is saying. When you get, so a, thou, a, a mile, really what they're talking about is a thousand paces. When you get to pace 1,001, you're not to drop it, but you'll be willing to go to the 2,000th pace. That's what he's saying here. If someone forces you to do something, you don't stop when, when they say you can be done. You go further because Jesus is more important. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. It's so important that we understand that our preferences and our desires are less important than the gospel. And if we're in forced labor, I'm not talking about slavery. I'm talking about a situation we find ourselves in that's unfair. Shouldn't we be more concerned that that person knows Jesus than that we get to stop doing what hurts? That is the most important thing. Jesus is the most important thing. Verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, some people have taken this verse out of context, meaning give to everyone at the, uh, at the freeway off-ramp, right? And that's okay. Look, if, if you're being faithful because you love Jesus, then do it. This context means someone in need, someone actually in need. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You know what this is Jesus is calling us to do? Stop holding on so tight to your possessions. Be willing to give it up if it means Jesus is glorified. Now, we may have moved to Kentucky for what seemed like wrong reasons. Cheaper housing, right? Like who can afford to live in a, even a car here? Gas. You pay, how do you pay for gas here? Uh, you may have thought, well, he's just they're moving to Kentucky to get out of California because this is the worst place you could possibly live. I'm just, I'm just here to say that's not true. We made this decision that was very calculated. A couple of reasons. We wanted to be on single income, right? So that was important. Other reasons. We wanted to live generously. How can we be generous with money and our time if all we do is sit in traffic and work? I'm not saying that everyone should move, but that was what God, God put on our hearts we wanted to live generously on a single income. And this is what God put on our hearts. We prayed about it. We wanted to let go of our possessions, and we wanted to find a way to do it. I share this with you not to prop ourselves up, my wife and I, my family, but to encourage you 
to put away vengeance and to put on Jesus. And when you put on Jesus, you'll let go of your stuff. I had all sorts of amazing quotes to read for you and to wow you with. But you know what's more of a wow? This Jesus. And I want to share a story someone shared with me um, of this family that bought land in Malibu. How do you buy land in Malibu? Who knows, right? A Bitcoin or something. Not anymore, but back in a few months ago. So they bought property right on the beach to build a house. They built this amazing, have you seen a sunset in Malibu? It's, it, for some reason, it's just way more beautiful than the sunset in Santa Monica, which is like 20 miles south. It's the most beautiful sunset you'll see. They built this extravagant house. Um, and when it was finished, they were sitting in their living room, and they're like, man, this sunset isn't as nice as I remember. They're looking out the window. The problem with this house, this is a true story, is the design of the house was backwards, and they put the smaller windows towards the water. Right? So the bigger windows towards whatever is behind them, the road. Their problem wasn't that the sunset wasn't beautiful. It was that their window was too small. And, and the teaching in that story is build a bigger window. If you don't see Jesus for who he is as God and you choose vengeance over him, your window is way too small. It's not Jesus who's small. It's our window. And how do we build a bigger window? Well, we start with this. Then we go to this. And we beg God to change our hearts. We beg God. If we see vengeance in our hearts, we beg him, give me Jesus, not vengeance. This is what Jesus is teaching us here. He is such a good God. This building is proof of, proof of his faithfulness. And even in pain, your whole family is with you. They love you. This whole church loves you. His faithfulness is unmatched. Vengeance has never given you anything except for people that don't like you anymore. But what's more important, people that don't like you or people that worship at Jesus? I'm going to say it again. Don't demand vengeance. Demand Jesus. And if that's your heart right now, if you get offended at things you disagree with and that's more important to you than the truth of the gospel, I, I beg you, pray to God to change your heart. This Jesus Christ, he came to this, this, this earth that he created in the form of a man because we needed it. We, we, are, we were and we still are this, 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 these creatures on this planet made in the image of God that just reject the one who made us because we love ourselves so much. And I say ourselves because that's me included. But God so loved the world that even when we demanded vengeance, he sent Jesus to die on a cross to pay for our sins. And if you've been a Christian for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, that truth is the greatest miracle that you'll ever hear. And let it sink in. He died on a cross because we demanded vengeance. But he rose from the grave so that we can demand Jesus because he is living and we have a living hope and his name is Jesus Christ. And he sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. So again, if our hearts are offended and demand vengeance, pray to God today.